He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome to Insight. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, who's looking after New Zealand security and where are they looking? Is the net set to catch the threat fine enough to do its job or are there holes that let dangers pass through undetected? In the aftermath of the country's worst terrorist attack, is it possible to get answers to these questions? In a two-part investigation, senior specialist reporter Phil Pennington has been trying to find out more. Central Christchurch is in lockdown after shots were fired in two mosques in the city. Armed police were deployed when 20 gunshots were reported at the mosque on Deans Avenue near Hagley Park. The man had a long jacket and had a camera and the big gun and he just shooting all the people. At the uh, Wigerton and Deans um, Avenue, uh, we understand a shooting has taken place at a uh, local mosque here in central Christchurch. The March 15th attack at the Deans Avenue and Linwood Mosques. 51 people are killed or die later, as many again are injured. It was sudden, it was horrendous, it was bewildering. New Zealand Muslims are still grappling with the implications and the country is grasping for answers they hope the Royal Commission will provide. Many want to know whether the national security system, the SIS and GCSB intelligence agencies, the police, customs and others have been putting their resources and priorities in the right place. So who is doing what and who knows what they're doing? The police have preceded me to this quiet Paraparaumu street on the Kapiti coast. Two detectives with sidearms came here shortly after the mosque attack to interview Kerry Bolton. He's been immersed for decades on the far right, and some on the left believe the retiree is mentoring and recruiting for a new generation of white rights groups. He denies that. By email he turned me down for an interview, but perhaps he'll talk to me face to face. Thought we have an old man's that. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Kerry Bolton? Yes, that's right. Phil Pennington, RNZ. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. you on the phone. Happened to be passing. Oh, you happened to be passing. Oh, I did. Right. I did. Yeah, I wondered well, if I could uh, well, talk to you. Well, come on, then. Okay. Kerry Bolton is round-faced and white-haired and the most prolific writer about what he calls rightist ideas in New Zealand. 17 books so far, and since March 15, 40,000 words in online journals about how he perceives the causes and the fallout of the shootings. His last job before retiring was as a library assistant and says he's not a threat to anyone. I am not a white nationalist. I'm certainly uh, proud of Western heritage. And anti-anything, like anti-Muslim or anti-any religion? Uh, In my case, I'm specifically pro-Islam, and always have been. Kerry Bolton won't tell me if he has a firearms licence or a gun. He maintains he hasn't been active in any far-right groups since he was Secretary of the National Front in 2004. He says the front used to consist of older white men who were pro-empire and anti-free trade and globalism, but then skinheads began joining. He has come under police scrutiny, but is adamant he's never been part of a group that was a genuine threat, and nor would he be. No, no, I mean, it's counterproductive. I mean, I'm not too sure the skinheadism in New Zealand is a particular um, example anymore to to be worried about. A few years ago, I think... There's quite a you know element there, um, but because you have been associated with groups that have attracted people like the National Front, which got associated with neo-Nazism, that then attracted people who were a threat. Correct? I can't say that the NFA you know at its worst 
was particularly violent. Left-wing activists have called Kerry Bolton a hate preacher. He rejects that and is bemused at being on a police watch list. You know, I can understand them being interested in what's going on, and, and uh, but, um, you know, be a, a bit more specific as to targets. Not every, everyone and everyone that has a maybe a vaguely right-wing background, you know, it's a terrible waste of time. However, many people believe that more monitoring of the far right is exactly what's needed and should have been going on all along. The police do now appear to be playing catch-up. They refused an official Information Act request from RNZ for any information they hold about the white rights dominion movement on security grounds. But in an OIA response last year, the Wellington police told peace activists they hold no information about it. This was six months after the movement launched online and posters promoting the cause were stuck on the city's lampposts. As for the intelligence agencies, the Security Intelligence Service and the Government Communications Security Bureau, the minister responsible for them, Andrew Little, has admitted they began looking at the far right in earnest only last year. The agencies got to a point last year where they thought, given, given the rhetoric that's around, given the actions in other parts of the world, it was time for us to develop a discreet and explicit response to this particular type of violent extremism. That response has not yet got to the point of targeting actual individuals or organisations. Mr Little added on Morning Report... It's not just about whether the, the technology and the systems that the agencies have uh, have been effective in monitoring what is happening, but actually whether there are you know, whether there's sort of organisational blind spots. If the organisation has a blind spot, it's not for lack of eyes. The national security system spans at least half a dozen agencies within the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, or DPMC, that govern a raft of lead agencies such as police, the SIS and GCSB. A university senior lecturer, Chris Rothery, has researched the state of the system for three years. I don't believe there's any body that's missing. You know, there's policy units and there's intelligence groups. You know, they've got their security system directorate. So they... They, they seem to have everything that is required of a, of a, I suppose, a government-controlled national security system. Yet the Massey University academic, based in Waikato, has concluded the security setup is seriously wanting. I found through the research that n- there is no national security strategy or, or, or documented strategy. Uh, there is a lack of a cohesive national security strategy that is forward-looking at risk reduction. There's no national security intent statement. The National Security Handbook, you can see there that they are very much taking a responsive approach rather than a proactive approach to risk reduction. Looking at the events of March of this year, it appears that DPMC is not willing to forecast risk or at least try and find a way in which they can coordinate all of the government agencies to try and provide a system which prevents risk or at least maximises all the efforts across government to catch these guys before it happens. Chris Rothery's colleague at Massey's Centre for Defence and Security Studies in Manawatu, ex-Army Major Terry Johansson, has separately researched the structure put in place in 2011. It was tweaked again in 2016, but he says it remains weaker than it first appears. If you read about the intelligence community, it's really convoluted. 
it's really hard to understand the lines of relationship and as an ex-military person who you know studied strategy and done you know staff college with the Americans um, to me I, I was going well, this make there's no linkages this is exacerbated he thinks by a system that is trying to assess all risks ranging from volcanic eruption to financial meltdown to terrorist attack it's the security of everything at the same time the security of nothing because you're trying to cover such a broad spectrum of activities and events that actually you can't. This reactionary approach was spelt out 18 months ago in the briefing to Jacinda Ardern, then the incoming Minister for National Security and Intelligence, which said... The all-of-government national security system has tended more to responses to events rather than systematically bringing a forward-looking approach to risk reduction. And the briefing recommended more of the same because that would build resilience for faster recovery. The Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet told Insight there is no single counter-terrorism strategy, but added that there is a strategic framework drawn up just last year. The department then delayed Insight's request for details about this framework, made under the Official Information Act, until later in June. It also says there is a terrorism risk profile and a framework for preventing violent extremism. Terry Johansson says that towards the end of the previous government, a top official told him that not having a national security strategy was a deliberate choice. I was told that the guidance from the Prime Minister Key at the time was we don't have a national strategy because then the government can be held accountable to that by the opposition. And that the person briefing me on that seemed to think it was a problem. The spy agency minister in the national government at the time, and up until the 2017 election, was Chris Finlayson, who has this response. I would say that's rubbish. The idea that uh, we that the, the key government or the English government would compromise national security for crass political considerations is contemptible. Mr Finlayson adds... Questions of... All forms of terrorism uh, were foremost uh, in our minds. Uh, Was there a counter-terrorism strategy? Uh, I don't want to sound vague. Uh, I'm not sure. But then he acknowledges some things were off the radar. I must confess the issue of the far right, when I was the minister, uh, never came to the forefront. We were more concerned with particular activities, namely terrorism, cyber-terrorism, issues like that. The system has national intelligence priorities, reviewed and agreed by the Cabinet every one to two years. The government says a national risk register is being worked on, though DPMC says this register is already in use and covers terrorism. As for who is doing the hard yards behind the advice that goes to the Cabinet and to department chief executives, at least three agencies have something to do with spotting potential dangers the National Assessments Bureau, the Combined Threat Assessment Group and the new National Risk Unit. But the tasks described online for each sound vaguely similar. It's difficult to clarify what exactly they're responsible for. The Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet has turned down an interview request, even at a general level, about the agency's roles. The Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, Cheryl Gwynne, has also declined an interview, but in a statement said... The Inspector General of Intelligence and Security role requires an understanding of the wider national security framework, including the process that determines the government's intelligence priorities. 
The IGIS does not, however, have oversight of the setting of the intelligence priorities, which are ultimately determined by Cabinet. By contrast, in other comparable systems such as Australia and Canada, independent oversight of all government intelligence functions is the responsibility of one body. I'm Phil Pennington and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme on who should be keeping New Zealanders safe from extremists. The Auditor-General's most recent review of security sector governance in 2016 said a restructure in 2013 meant it had become clearer who was responsible for assessing threats, including terrorism. It said that the right people are coming together with greater purpose. But the AG also said the lines of accountability were unclear and agencies were confused. The Auditor-General said the work to define national security risks was particularly important for the governance part of the Officials Committee for Domestic and External Security Coordination, or ODESC. But within a year of saying this, ODESC-G, as it was called, had been disbanded. The security setup for a short time also included a fourth group, the Strategic Risk and Resilience Panel, and the fate of this experiment is illuminating. Created under the Prime Minister John Key in 2014, the nine-member panel of science, industry and defence leaders was a novel attempt to tap into outsiders' insights of where the threats might lie. The DPMC website said the panel's job was to provide a rigorous and systematic approach to anticipating and mitigating strategic national security risks. Actually, I think that's a a mischaracterisation of what the panel was doing. Murray Sherwin chaired the Strategic Risk and Resilience Panel, so he should know. What we were doing fundamentally was trying to work out whether you could create a framework which would allow uh, either cabinet ministers or the likes of Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, to understand the nature of risks that New Zealand is exposed to and whether those were being effectively managed. Okay, so you weren't looking at anticipating what risks there might be? Not specifically, no. No, it was much more around the framework. But it proved too difficult. The framework came out as either so high level to be practically useless or so detailed as to be unwieldy. Though the Auditor-General in 2016 said Mr Sherwin's panel was providing valuable independent advice on defining national security risks, it folded a year later after just a few meetings. At those meetings, domestic extremism came up half a dozen times. An OIA response shows this was mostly as an aside or in reports that referred to an absence of information, such as this. A document outlining key decisions and outcomes of panel meetings notes that more focus was needed on the drivers of domestic extremism, noting examples of those radicalised due to strong positions on ecological and technological issues. And this. A report produced for the panel by KPMG as part of a broader programme of work to improve analysis and treatment of significant national security risk refers to domestic extremism as an issue which had been highlighted in previous system-wide risk identification work, but which had not been specifically analysed. This disturbs researcher Terry Johansson. You would think that there would be some sort of uh, tracking of that risk to see that it wasn't developing. And it suggests here that there isn't. It was highlighted, it was identified and then let go. 
Other documents released to the media since the mosque attacks also indicate domestic extremism as a whole got little agency attention, and the white supremacist end of it virtually none. In a statement, the DPMC said terrorism had been a regular topic on the Security and Intelligence Board's agenda for the last two years, since 2017. This is the board that has oversight of all counter-terrorism work, including, according to officials, the prevention of violent extremism. Murray Sherwin says the closest his panel got was to take a look at social cohesion as a way to combat radicalisation. Crucially, his panel was given no inkling as to what security agencies were thinking or doing. We didn't have any great visibility of it, and actually most of the members of the panel, the external members of the panel, didn't even have security clearances, so that gives you an idea that we weren't sort of diving into that territory. He raised that problem with Andrew Kibblewhite, the topmost national security official and chief executive of the DPMC. The work we were doing, and there was plenty of work to be done there on the traditional risks was fine, but uh, there were a range of other issues which we thought were likely to be important, including social disaffection and all of those sorts of things, uh, which we didn't have a lot of visibility of, we hadn't done a lot of work of. The point I'm making is that may have been covered more uh, intensively within the, uh, the, the traditional security agencies. We didn't have visibility of that at that point and were saying if you are going to produce a comprehensive risk register, then you'd want to bring those in as well. What was the reply when you asked for that visibility? Uh, there was no specific reply, but the committee basically... Did, did you get visibility? Uh, no, no, we didn't at that point. The committee basically folded after the Kaikoura earthquakes when uh, other priorities rolled over. In 2017, G also folded. Shortly after, the Auditor-General's review said national security risks had been identified. Nevertheless, a new National Risk Unit was set up. It has a risk management and coordination role that sounds similar to what the Sherwin panel was doing, but without the outsider input. Its head, Dr Mark Evans, is a former defence analyst focused on China and a public agency advisor on farming and education. The DPMC wouldn't let RNZ interview either him or the coordinator of counter-terrorism, a role also set up in 2017. It is, as it sounds, security agency churn, with at least half a dozen top roles or key groups set up or disbanded in the last five years. The SIS, New Zealand's primary civilian intelligence agency, warned in 2015 that money was so tight it was making tough decisions on what investigations to drop. An overhaul began, including of the law that governs the spy agencies, after a 2016 review found it was outdated, patchy and inconsistent. The resulting law changes boosted the GCSB's electronic surveillance powers within New Zealand. The GCSB contributes to national security by providing information assurance and cyber security to the government and critical infrastructure organisations. The national-led government also initiated a $180 million funding boost over four years in 2016 for the GCSB and SIS. And though a chunk of this has not yet been spent, the Labour coalition government this year added another $50 million anyway. The SIS has tripled in size since 2002 and it now has more than 300 staff. Even after the mosque attacks, hardly anyone is questioning if the resources are adequate. 
The minister responsible for the spy agencies, Andrew Little, maintains the security system he inherited in 2017 is effective. However, he also confirms there is no national security strategy and has this response to the lack of a national counter-terrorism strategy. It is surprising in light of um, the events of the 15th of March. We like to think we have a counter-terrorism means, you know, the, the ability to respond to something, uh, but we don't have a strategy that anticipates and prevents or, or seeks prevention of a terrorist act happening. The Minister expects the Royal Commission to address this. Chris Finlayson was Minister in charge of the spy agencies from 2014 to 2017 during the operational and legislative upheavals at the SIS and GCSB. He says that rebuilding equipped the national security system with all the vital parts it needed. And he rejects the incoming briefing to Ms Ardern that describes the system he bequeathed to her as much more reactionary than forward-looking. That's not the way I saw it. The whole purpose of having a discussion starting at the National Security Committee with the officials having um, a parallel committee uh, is so that we can start to think about issues long term. So I'm sorry, I don't um, agree with the briefing. What about that very risk register? Was there one while you were minister? There there were... uh, risks which were identified to the country, uh, I don't know that I would ever have referred to it as a risk register. Uh, Whether you call it a framework or a register or a list, there were always people who were proactively considering uh, security risks of all sorts. That range of sorts has been varied, though it has not included the far right, at least not since the 1990s when neo-Nazis were on the radar. It has included Māori activists in the 2007 terrorist raids, the migrant internet mogul Kim.com since 2012, journalist Nikki Haga, and environmental activists who several government departments used private investigators to spy on for a decade up until 2016. Massey's Chris Rothery says the threats are being prioritised by agencies operating in silos without coordination and without any basic statement of intent. And Terry Johansson says this lack of cohesion is combined with a lack of any meaningful public consultation about the entire security system since the mid-1980s, which is a reason he called his master's thesis on the subject the Emperor's New Clothes. It was very much a, a, being used as a political tool uh, for governments to strengthen their political authority. He says the prime example is the Prime Minister John Key in 2014 naming Islamic State, or IS, as the number one threat to New Zealand, ahead of what arguably were top public concerns about free trade deals and environmental impacts from mining. The focus on IS doubled down on the fixation since 9-11 on combating Islamic fundamentalism. A law professor at Otago University, Andrew Geddes, says New Zealand is quick to fall in with global terrorism priorities. He says it partly follows the lead of the United Nations, which has a terrorism register that lists 2,500 people and groups, not one of whom is a right-wing extremist or white supremacist group. The fact that they've got this international cross-border collaboration can't help but colour what they see as being a threat and where they see those threats coming from. And the strongest agitator in this area has been the United States.
The awakening of agencies in this country to the far-right threat parallels the belated rousing of US law enforcement. Janet Reitman is investigating this for the New York Times magazine and writing a book about it, about how a klaxon call went up in 2009 but was not just ignored but rejected in Washington. She warns the US is now far behind the curve in understanding far-right symbols, language and online recruitment and that New Zealand needs to look elsewhere for lessons on how to respond to March 15. What I was told by one of my sources who was in that story, I was like, we don't have a clue. We don't have a clue about any of that in regard to the far right. In 2009, the Department of Homeland Security warned that an explosion of far-right recruiting and violence was imminent, triggered by the election of Barack Obama. The Republicans politicised this as an attack on the whole right wing. The report was withdrawn and the six-person team that wrote it got the chop. They disintegrated this team, they shuffled some people around. So the kind of um, focus on domestic terrorism, which was very, very small to begin with, but at least there was a sort of dedicated unit. There was no longer this little dedicated unit. All training courses and briefings presentations associated with the report were cancelled, and its main analyst, Daryl Johnson, was pushed out. But his warnings came to pass, and the toll from far-right attacks in the US has mounted in the years since. Janet Reitman says these old hatreds are metamorphizing faster than the priorities for spending and research are shifting. There was a program that was you know, going to be looking at the ways in which far-right groups recruit online and the way groups like ISIS recruit online, and the money was taken back from that. So there's this kind of gigantic like, intelligence gap, like a real intelligence gap, Just last month, the FBI said it was investigating 850 cases of domestic terrorism. This was a serious and persistent threat, it said. However, the US still has no specific charge it can lay of domestic terrorism. In New Zealand, the Royal Commission of Inquiry began in mid-May and is carrying on for most of the year, mostly behind closed doors. But Chris Rothery of Massey hopes things don't stay that way. He says once the commission is over, there needs to be a full review of the national security system with full consultation with both the private sector and the public. He says politicians may not be able to agree on a national security strategy, and this is a reason few countries have one, but even so, New Zealand needs to look to the rest of the world to see what works best. Even this year, Australia was calling for the development of a national security strategy because of the complexity and the range of threats that we are facing in the world. Following the mosque attack, the Auditor-General is proposing to look into the firearms buyback scheme, but there's no suggestion of an audit of the national security system like the one back in 2016. So is the national security structure, the way it spots threats, the priorities it sets, the invasive powers it bestows on some agencies, performing and protecting New Zealanders as it should? It's difficult to find out. It's difficult to tell. It depends who you ask. Those who've been studying this for a long time have a host of questions. But many believe that after the attack on two mosques that left so many dead, greater transparency and a willingness to answer questions is essential. That programme was written and presented by Phil Pennington. Next week on Insight, in the second part of his investigation, Phil explores who and what is the focus of security agencies' activities. I'm Philip Tony, and that's all from Insight for today. Ka kite anō.